0: Welcome back to the South African Border Wars Podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 38 and it's time to scrutinize the fallout from Operation Reindeer, particularly the attack on Kasinga during 1978. As you heard last episode, the SADF regarded the invasion of Angola as a success. However, as we know, war is politics by other means and in this, the South African state had failed. It would also lead to Swapo's Operation Revenge, which would kill far more SADF troops than the airborne assault at Kasinga. The strategic plan of Operation Reindeer was to weaken Swapo at the point the United Nations had demanded elections. The idea was to show how militarily weak Swapo was, but this strategy backfired spectacularly. Instead, it actually strengthened Swapo's position internationally. Attacking a town without any warning was always going to cause civilian casualties, and therefore bad PR. It was regarded as not only unethical, It was criminal. While Kasinga was actually part of a group of abandoned mining towns and villages in the region, it had been rebuilt by Swapo with the Angolan government's support to use as a logistics and transit camp for its fighters. According to a Swapo white paper created later, 624 of its fighters and civilians died there on the 4th of May 1978. 611 were wounded. Among the dead were 167 women and 298 teenagers and children. Since many of the fighters were women or teenagers and many were not in uniform at the time of the attack, the exact number of civilians among the dead has never been established with certainty. Pretoria's official line after this raid was that Kasinga was a great military success, but it had almost gone seriously wrong, as we've heard. The paratroopers were way off target and later botched decisions to withdraw early led to the Cubans approaching in a real danger that the evacuation would become a catastrophe. The South African Air Force's determination stopped this from happening, but it wasn't a good example of an organized attack on a town, despite what's been said over the years by the SADF. And that's why they never tried it again. A bit like the Germans who landed paratroopers at Crete in May 1941. They also never conducted an airborne attack of the same kind after that disaster. The South Africans inflicted heavy casualties, but missed the commander Dimo Amambo and other senior leaders who appear to have fled at the start of the bombing raid. The SADF casualties were low for an audacious airborne attack, which meant the ruling Nationalist Party would not face internal sanctions inside South Africa. Three soldiers were killed, one was missing in action, presumed dead, and 11 wounded. This was politically rewarding, except of course for the loved ones of the four men, either MIA or dead. The concept of preemptive strikes was now regarded as valid as their overall strategy, at least according to General Constant Fulhoun. However, future attacks would always take place overland. The long term strategic effect of the attack on the Angolan town was to turn most of the world against Pretoria, creating an almost perfect moment for Swapo. Later, in 1998, the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission also concluded that, at least from the SADF's perspective, Kasinga was actually a military facility, which exonerated some of the senior army staff involved. While the South African government boasted how a paltry 300-odd paratroopers took out a Swapo transit town, Swapo's narrative swamped the storyline. It was also just the tonic that Swapo needed to jolt some of the vacillating neutral nations into gear. The white regime now resembled a Nazi regime and the storyline was tailor-made in a newly post-colonial Africa. And yet... We know that Kasinga was a crucial Swapo transit camp because former MK Captain Joseph Korbo was based there. Korbo called Kasinga the main Swapo command post in southern Angola and said that there'd been a build-up of military supplies for an obvious Swapo infiltration campaign with that town as a linchpin in the entire plan. But probably the most damning evidence that Swapo was using the camp as a military transit point was the photographs and, ironically, a lack of photographs. There was a vast array of sophisticated defensive trenches and administration offices along with bunkers. These were situated so as to almost encircle Kasinga and they included access and communication trenches and observation points as well as forward foxholes. There was no sign of the usual protection for non-military inhabitants nor any sign of the use of the Red Cross on roofs of houses to indicate this was a civilian and non-military area. The selection of the town was for military reasons. The terrain around Kasinga favoured a defence, it was on a slight rise. Anyone attacking would have to run uphill, at least if they were arriving overland. Then, the Colonga River formed a natural obstacle to the western side of the town. To the south, the MPLA and Cuban armoured garrison was drawn up at Tecimotete, which explained the gaps in the southern trenches, because Swapo believed an overland attack would run slap-bang into these units first. Then the lack of photographs of dead civilians and children was confusing. And to this day, Swapo has refused to allow any of the bodies to be exhumed in what they claim was a mass grave full of children. This is sharply different to the Iraqis, the Croatians, and others who want the truth of genocide and killing revealed. But there's also a critical flaw with the SADF's comment that the photographs were proof that this base was exclusively for military use. You see, the Defense Force had planned its visual coverage and apart from exaggerating Swapur's actions in Kasinga, it also briefed photographers to focus on images supporting the South African cause. Bodies were only to be photographed with weapons by their side. Negative images, such as suffering victims or children, were to be avoided. Again, in war, nothing is clean. The photographer seemed to ignore the order in places, including pictures of bodies without weapons and one of a dead SADF paratrooper. Furthermore, on a political strategic level concerning security, the war really became an attempt at delaying any elections in South West Africa, which most believed would take place as early as 1978 and would be won by Swapo. This has been vehemently denied by many who say the democratic Turnhaller alliance was in the running as well, but I'm afraid whomever believes this is indulging in political fantasy. So the political strategy to bomb Kasinga was confused. It boiled down, really, to the lives of South African white males being exchanged for time as Pretoria held onto its Southwest African buffer zone against communism in order to improve its negotiation position. And still, Operation Reindeer wasn't quite finished. There were two more events which need closer scrutiny. Firstly, 3-2 Battalion was ordered into Angola two days after the attacks on Kasinga and Chetikwera. This was to assault a dozen smaller objectives in the Omapepa, Namudi and Enhombe areas, which were east of Chittacueta. Secondly, there was Swapo's revenge, which we'll hear about shortly. 3-2 Battalion, as we've heard, was a unit pretty much unique in the SADF. It was composed of a group of former FNLA troops and ex-Portuguese soldiers from Angola, led by South Africans. The men had nowhere to go after Portugal's leftist coup and Angola's new political dispensation controlled by the MPLA. The men of 3-2 were not quite mercenaries, not quite the foreign legion, and were nicknamed Buffalo Battalion, or sometimes just Buffalo, after the black troops who fought against the Confederacy during the American Civil War on behalf of the Union. Ironically, now black soldiers would actually be fighting for a white minority government, although 3-2 soldiers thought of themselves, as freedom fighters for their country, Angola. Under its commanding officer, Commandant Hertnell, the battalion had already bared its teeth in months of continuous counterinsurgency ops across southern Angola. So these SWAPO bases, which were designated as Objective Charlie, all lay between 3 and 30 kilometers north of the cut line and between beacons 26 and 30. Much about what happened next has not been published, but we know that on May 6th, five rifle companies of 3-2 battalion and a platoon of 81mm mortars, as well as a troop of 140mm medium guns lined up for the overland invasion. They set off before dawn on the 6th of May, and first contact was made near Minguela at 8.30 when Swapo opened fire on the mechanized unit with mortars. Nell's troops assaulted the base and Swapo fell back to Namudi, 4km west. The battalion only arrived there in the early afternoon and prepared for the next assault, but were delayed then attacked early on the 7th of May. Resistance was weak, and the base was overrun by noon. Then it was on to the next target, Omepapa, but once again the thick bush caused delays, and 3 battalion lagered that night. Swapu fired on the lager through the night with the 122mm rockets based at Onelimona, but caused no casualties. By the next morning, May the 8th, the real battle for Omepapa began. 3-2 were dropped in by Puma helicopters to speed up the assault, which took Swapu by surprise, and Omapapa was eventually overrun, along with smaller bases at Target 13 and two small camps near Onulomono. Desultory fighting took place over the next two days as the bases presumed to be occupied at Henhombe were empty and two small unknown camps at Ohepeto were located and burned down. By May 10th, 3-2 battalion raided Hangadima, Mamwandi, Bao, Namiche, and Tetoli. The exact number of casualties in these firefights and battles are unknown, and on the afternoon of 10th of May, 3-2 Battalion crossed back across the cut line into Southwest Africa, and that was the end of the South African initiative for the moment. Swapo meanwhile, was planning revenge, and their response would kill more than three times the number of South Africans that died in Operation Reindeer. This took place at Mulilo, the unofficial capital of the Eastern Caprivi, which had been a quiet zone for years, as we've heard. There was sporadic insurgency activity by Swapo and Kanu, the Kaprivi African National Union, which operated out of Zambia. But by 1978, the area was relatively peaceful and Kanu was taking issue with Swapu over their joint activities. Pretty much in the same way that MK had argued with Swapu about the military strategy, Kanu felt that Swapu was focusing on Ibambuland further west and not the Kaprivi. What would happen next took everyone by surprise, except for Swapu and those in the know inside Zambia. SADF army wives and families lived in Mulilo, enjoying the beauty of the Zambezi River, surrounded by unspoiled bushveld. Herds of elephants rambled around. Jackals could be heard as well as other animals during the night. It was a relatively soft deployment. That was about to change. Yes, there were incidents at the small fortified base known as Wenela, which was southwest of Katimo. That's where the SADF and Zambian Caprivi troops spent the hours staring at each other, in something that resembled the Western Front or Korea or the Ukraine these days. The Zambezi flowed into a bend here and created a natural bulge. They were a couple of hundred meters apart. Sometimes small arms or mortar fire would be exchanged, but very little damage was caused, let alone injuries, which is why Swapo's revenge attack was going to be so shocking. A few weeks after Operation Reindeer, intelligence reports began to filter in about activity in Zambia. On June the 8th, 1978, for example, a number of Swapo commanders were reported at a base in the bush near a village called Sinzimbele in Zambia's southwest. A few days later, Swapo and Zambian officials met nearby at a place called Mongu. Soon after the second meeting, SADF camps reported an increase in sniping. Clearly, something was going on. What was changing was that a large cache of weapons and ammunition had been carried into the area to the north of Katima Mulilo with the Zambian National Defence Force assistance. The ZNDF were there as a protection against any SADF plans to cross the border, a kind of insurance. The South Africans were growing perturbed and Defence HQ ordered an increase in the number of bomb shelters at Katima Mulilo, which began to be built. Bush was also cut down around Wenela so the field of fire could improve. The SADF was in the process of building a wall to provide extra cover and a new engineer base was planned east of the Kwando River. But... The Caprivi is an isolated place. There was difficulty in sourcing material for these defences, and transport was also difficult to obtain, so things were proceeding slowly. None of these extra defences were in place by the time Swapos leader Sam Nyoma paid a visit to his bases in southwestern Zambia. That was in early August, and the reason for his visit was revenge, although the only thing the SADF intelligence knew for certain is that Nyoma was there. Intelligence thought perhaps it was to re-motivate his men and women fighters after the shock of Kasinga. They also believed it could be a political move because the newly appointed United Nations Commissioner for Southwest Africa Namibia, Marti Atasari, was scheduled to visit the Caprivi later in August. All would be revealed and it wouldn't take long. On August 13th, there was a sudden surge in Zambian border violations as a series of mortar bombs landed near the airstrip and heavy machine gun fire pinned down South African troops who were training near the base. Alarming new intelligence circulated a few days later. On August 17th, the local Swapo leader called Commandant Solomon Huwala had apparently ordered two Swapo companies over the border from Imusho to set up closer to Mapacha. The problem was Mapacha was where the SADF's main airfield had been built. What they didn't know was that Huwala's men had deployed a large number of 82 mm and 60mm mortars. That wasn't all. Swapo had managed to set up Czech ZB 26 light machine guns, RPG 2s and 7 missile launchers, and even a 14.5mm anti aircraft gun. Just for good measure, Swapo deployed a 122mm Red Eye single tube rocket launcher just north of the cut line, only 4km from Winella, near the bulge. But it wasn't at Winella that the Red Eye would cause the most damage. By August 22nd, these weapons were in place and plans were almost complete. Just one more thing remained, and that was to warn their allies, the Zambians. So Solomon Huwala sent a group of his men with a message to the Zambian administrative and police base at Sasek, indicating an attack was imminent and that they should expect a South African counterattack, which could come by ground or by air or both. The garrison duly prepped its nine SA-7 heat-seeking missiles in three launches, then passed on a warning to fellow commanders along the border. Zambian forces were now ready. Of course, all this radio messaging had been picked up by the South Africans and intelligence at Defence HQ in Pretoria was alerted. One parachute battalion, and 81mm mortar group based near Blum, were put on a 60-minute standby, and a specialist medical team in Pretoria was also ready, along with a troop of 140-millimeter guns of 14 field regiment. At 7.30 p.m. on the night of August 22nd, officer commanding 13 sub-area Commandant Yaga called a group meeting at Katimumululu. An attack was likely within 24 hours, he said, and his officers were made aware of just how serious a threat this was. And yet, it appears some did not fully appreciate his warnings, as you're going to hear. Intelligence pointed to 600 SWAPO fighters being involved it would apparently target both Winela and Mapacha Air Base, and perhaps Katima Mulilo too. But the SADF had some teeth of their own, including a battery of 144mm guns and 81mm mortars. They also had two groups of heavily armed combat teams ready to respond. Combat Team Alpha was headed up by Lt. Harry Harvey and comprised two infantry platoons and a 60mm mortar section, along with two troops of Irland 90 armoured cars. Combat Team Bravo was led by Lt. Flip Gerber, an infantry platoon from the SA Cape Corps, backed up by six Elant 90 armoured cars and an 81mm mortar group. The reality, however, in military terms was Swapo held the initiative. By 21 hours 40 on August 22nd, the 140mm guns were in the air heading for Groenfontein, where they'd be based, until there was some clarity about Swapo's aims. Everyone was on tenterhooks. Midnight passed and still there was no action. At 0100 hours or early on the 23rd of August, Radio Zambia broadcast a message warning that the war against the South Africans would be intensified shortly. This was standard propaganda at the time, but what it was really signalling was the start of Operation Revenge. At 0115, a number of 122mm red-eye rockets were fired from the launcher north of the Caprivi, which whooshed overhead and then exploded with shattering force inside Katima Mulilo's military base. Five more followed, all missing the main buildings of the base, except for the last. This burst through the roof of a prefabricated barracks and blew up, pulverizing everything inside and setting the building ablaze. And it was this single rocket that killed more South African soldiers than the entire airborne assault on Kasinga. Exploding in such a confined space, the shell wreaked havoc, At first, when rescuers arrived, they believed two SADF troops had died, but the carnage hid the true number. Ten SADF soldiers died. Ten were wounded. This had never happened to the South Africans. Most observers were utterly shocked by the SADF deciding to leave men inside a soft-covered barracks after so much prior intelligence showed without doubt that a major attack, likely to include heavy weapons, was imminent. It wasn't just gung-ho, it was arrogant and proved how cock-eyed commanders could be when facing black soldiers. They automatically presumed their men would win each engagement because they believed blacks were inferior. How did it happen that more than 20 men were huddled inside a prefab after everything we've heard? The entire Western Capribe was on red alert and yet men were either sleeping or drinking coffee like it was a normal night back in Sibby Street when the 122mm rocket exploded. The SADF explanation later was the men were cold and others needed rest. These men were trained soldiers and were expected to face hardship, so that excuse is bogus and self-serving nonsense. As we'll hear in the course of the series, it wasn't the last time that a somewhat laissez-faire approach was taken regarding young South African lives and an arrogant attitude that prevailed about SWAPO's military capability. But this show wasn't close to being over. 25 more rockets landed across the Caprivi. Some fell south of Winela and others hit the civilian areas of Katima, including a school in the residential area. Then the Zambian Defence Force at Sasheki began firing their 82mm mortars at 0100 hours 24, targeting Winela once more. Shortly after that, Swapo's mortar teams deployed north of Caprivi followed up for good measure, hitting Winela sporadically. The South Africans responded quickly, with Wanela's 140mm guns firing at Swapo's mortars, which stopped almost immediately. But the Zambians were a different matter. They had shifted their mortars in the vicinity of Sesheke the day before, and this meant the SADF took more than two hours before they managed to silence the 82mm. Zambian civilians began to flee Sesheke as the South African mortars found their range, eventually hitting one of the trenches there and slightly injuring six ZNDF troops, but not causing much damage. By 0327, the Zambians ceased fire and Operation Revenge was over. The problem for the Zambians and Swapo was that that now set off the inevitable counter-attack. There was no way the South Africans would lick their wounds passively, and so at 0400 hours, the SA Army top brass decided to head for the Caprivi. The luminaries included Major General Yanni Heldenhuis, who was General Officer Commanding of South West Africa Command, and a medical team in tow there. Army Chief Lieutenant General Constant Fillion and his Air Force counterpart Bob Rogers took off from Pretoria, and they had their own version of retribution in mind. Swapo's Commandant Solomon Huwala was indeed correct. The counter-attack was going to be swift. It was swifter even than he imagined because it was decided to speed up the response, considering Alpha and Bravo groups had been prepped and they were ready to roll. They knew that Swapo and the Zambians would expect some kind of assault at first light. Instead, within half an hour of the bombardment, combat team Bravo moved out of Mapacha, heading for the borderline, and by dawn the small group of vehicles was heading towards Swapo base number 11, around 30 kilometers inside Zambia. The plan was to catch Swapo off guard by starting early, and they almost did. By 1100 hours 30, they reached the base but found it deserted. There was evidence of around 100 Swapo soldiers based there, with tracks showing they'd fled on foot, about half going north and the other half northwest. They'd also left a mortar base plate and 300 bombs, and in emplacements, another two 60mm mortars were found, along with a 75mm recoilless gun and eight 82mm mortars. Bravo took these and returned to Mapacha without making contact. But Combat Team Alpha had a completely different experience, as you're going to hear next episode. Just a quick note, at times these episodes may arrive slightly late as my workload leads to some deadline issues, but I'm trying to land one a week, or at least within 10 days. Thanks for the messages I'm receiving from around the world. Really interesting group of listeners out there, and you keeping me on my toes. You can contact me via my website abwarpodcast.com or direct message me on Twitter, at deslathan for any comments and or suggestions. Until next, tot